Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This is the conversation we love to have about challenging problems and issues in our communities around this country uh, and people who are doing amazing things to address them. Uh, one of the partnerships that share our strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign that we are most excited about is a relatively new partnership with the American Academy of Pediatrics. And both of our guests today are connected to the American Academy of Pediatrics and to that partnership. Uh, we're so fortunate to have Mark Del Monte here with us. He's the CEO and Executive Vice President of the American Academy of Pediatrics, an organization of 67,000 pediatricians and specialists and uh, others involved in pediatric health. Uh, the AAP was founded in 1930, almost 100 years ago, uh, and it's a really special organization that I've been aware of um, in certainly all the time that I worked on Capitol Hill and now in our work at Share Our Strength. And we're joined by Dr. Kimberly Montez, who is uh, board certified in pediatrics, an associate professor at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and has been an outspoken advocate on a number of child health uh, and hunger and nutrition issues, and has worked closely with the No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, Mark and Kimberly, thank you both so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. And me as well. Uh, we really are excited about this partnership. You know, one of the things that I want to, you know, kind of point out for our listeners is that Share Our Strength for more than 10 years has been very focused on childhood hunger and on believing that um, we certainly have the resources in this country to solve it. There's not a shortage of food and there's not a shortage of food programs that it's a solvable problem. But we have worked primarily through uh, the school system and the school lunch and the school breakfast and the summer meals programs, making sure that kids have those resources. One of the things that has always been a challenge for us is realizing that um, many of the youngest kids, in some cases the most vulnerable, are not yet in school. Uh, children from birth to five, perhaps, uh, may not be in school yet. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, where might there be some infrastructure uh, that would enable us to reach these kids. Uh, and then the more we learned about uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics and, of course, the notion that uh, almost all families, no matter their circumstances, are taking their children to pediatricians, um, in many cases, several times a year, uh, we realized that pediatricians and who, who cares more about kids than pediatricians would be a perfect partner for us in screening for uh, and trying to address and make referrals uh, for kids who are presenting with any type of hunger issues. So uh, as I say, this just feels like a uh, partnership that was uh, almost like a match made in heaven. I want to start by just asking each of you, because I know this is always of interest to our listeners, before we get into the specific work uh, of, of this partnership, uh, tell us a little bit about how you ended up um, where you are now. I know, Mark, in your case, that uh, you've done government affairs work for the AIDS Alliance for Children, Youth, and Families. Uh, you've got a law degree. Tell us a little bit about your path and uh, how and why it led you to uh, your role now as CEO and Executive Vice President. Wow, sure. Uh, happy to. I am, as you said, a lawyer, uh, not a pediatrician, but from my earliest days in law practice, uh, focused on children was a natural part of that. My, my first job out of law school was to provide free legal services to children and families living with HIV in Oakland in the mid-90s. And so uh, what I learned from that experience as a young lawyer was the intersection of all of the social determinants of health into the lives of families and all of the systemic and structural things that interfere with their ability, children's ability to grow up and be healthy. And so over time, uh, I began to think about systems work and how to, how to get uh, a larger uh, systems change going and eventually moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, to work on that at the national level in the nation's capital. And then in 2005, uh, was really lucky to get a job at the American Academy of Pediatrics in the Washington, D.C. office. And I've been there now 19 years or so and uh, have worked in different jobs uh, at the AAP over the years and became the uh, CEO and executive vice president about five years ago. So it's been an incredible experience. And you know, people often ask me, what is it like to work for pediatricians? And, and I always say the same thing, which is, Pediatricians are who you think they are. They are a group of physicians 
who are incredibly expert and skilled, but are really focused on the optimal health and well-being of children and their families. And so every day is an inspiration. And even when we're working on hard things like food insecurity or childhood hunger or uh, all the other things that we have to tackle, the, the ability to engage in that work with pediatricians like the members of the AP is a real privilege. And so I, I have the best job there is. Uh, it feels like the best job there is. And I know for you know those of us who are parents, certainly, I've got three kids uh, now. Uh, one is still at the age of seeing a pediatrician, but um, pediatricians have always been heroes in our family, frankly. And Mark, uh, before I turn to Kimberly, I don't want to let you off too easily. I want to, I want to ask you to just go back a little bit further uh, and just talk about some of the, I guess, the formative influences that sent you in this direction of a career in public service. You kind of started with your first job, but like, where you know, what were the impulses that sent you in this direction? It was uh, 1996, and I was in the middle of law school, and uh, there was a legal clinic where you could go and do community service in order to get credit hours for school, and there was a, a poverty law clinic in in Oakland, where most of the population in Oakland was, and it was right in the middle of the HIV-AIDS epidemic in Oakland. And seeing what was going on there, uh, there was no none of the kind of modern... Uh, drugs and armamentarium that we have now, uh, people were dying pretty quickly and pretty badly, including children. And so to see all of that, to, to see that, as I said, the, the terrible intersection of structural inequity and racism and poverty and substance abuse and uh, all the rest, including infectious disease in the middle of it, a deadly uh, virus, uh, really changed something for me uh, and in the way that I thought about what being a lawyer could be like and what being a lawyer should be. And so it wasn't very long before I decided that uh, my law career would be about doing something to make the lives of children better. And uh, that just sort of had a step-by-step process after that, one job after the next. Uh, and uh, But it's always been kids. I've never, I've never had a professional job uh, that wasn't focused on children and families' health in some specific way. Uh, and, and were your parents or, and family at all involved in uh, this type of community work or any type of community work? Uh, not really. My mother is a nurse. I learned a lot. Uh, she was a trauma center nurse when I was younger. And so um, I learned a lot uh, from that uh, and then uh, spent her whole career in nursing. So I think there's you know some focus on healthcare there. But um, uh, I, I just it was really a, the profound circumstances that I was witness to in Oakland that were really transformational in that time. Yeah, yeah, I could I could see that. Kimberly, uh, how about you, uh, doctor, advocate, educator? Um, what led to such a blend in your career and where did it start? Sure, I think it started with my own childhood. Um, in fact, I grew up um, using WIC and SNAP and was actually beneficiary of free school meals all the way through high school. So I would say that sort of lived experience and living and growing up in a low income community is really what fueled my passion really towards community health. I think back then uh, health equity wasn't really a term that was used. It's it's now become much more popular, but really I've dedicated my career to health equity based on my own lived experiences and, and those of my family and, and surrounding community. So really I, I, was, I always knew that I wanted to pursue pediatrics. In fact, I was a pediatric patient myself. I, I had a heart surgery when I was two and a half. So I, I grew up going to visit multiple specialists and developed great rapport with many of them and then learned that ways not to be with others. Um, so, so I think that that influenced me and I always knew I wanted to go into pediatrics. And in medical school, I really started my focus on community health and advocacy and did a lot, a lot of work in medical school. In residency, I became highly involved in advocacy. I got involved with the American Academy of Pediatrics. I received an advocacy grant from the Community Pediatrics Training Initiative, and that really started my career in advocacy. Um, I, there Again, there weren't health equity sort of fellowships at that time. Um, so the closest to that was a community health fellowship. And so I knew I wanted to pursue a community health fellowship. And I also recognized that as a resident, I, I really enjoyed the one-on-one encounters with patients. I enjoyed the, the relationships that I built. But I also realized that I was, I was really addressing this almost the same problem with, with multiple patients. And, and I realized that 
it, it was the structural barriers that 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 were affecting this problem. It wasn't it wasn't anything on the patient's part. And I also recognize that as a pediatrician, I didn't necessarily felt I didn't feel at the time that I had the the, the skills, the tools that I needed um, to be able to address that problem. So that's what led me to pursue a community health fellowship and a master's in public health. Um, so I moved across the country and. Um, and trained uh, and kind of developed some of those skills and worked on projects. Um, and then I and then I stayed um, in the area to uh, to work for a federally qualified community health center where I was really on the front lines once again of working with low income populations, high social needs, um, and 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 learning there. I was able to do a little bit of education. Um, so I worked with with medical students in, in the area and I, I really realized that that was something that I, I greatly enjoyed and I had never considered academic medicine um, in residency. I don't think I was as necessarily as exposed to it, but realized that that, that might be something I would be interested in. So after completing um, my my required three years of loan repayment, I, um, I moved. Um, uh, to an area that I never I thought I would be in. So I'm in North Carolina right now. Um, I grew up in Houston, trained in you know California mostly. Spent some time on the the East Coast, and now I'm in North Carolina. And um, again, I've continued my relationship with the American Academy of Pediatrics throughout my career, and it's really been my professional home. I really have felt so supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I've had a number of positions. Um, with with the academy that have allowed me to really elevate my my platform my my voice um, on a national level to be able to advocate um, for kids and in particular when I started my position at Wake Forest I started getting involved in research and advocacy um, in particular specifically around food insecurity and so that's that's where a lot of my fo- I, I, fo- I have a lot of different um, interests but um, most of it is around um, food insecurity and so I'm working with the AAP on, on a lot of um, initiatives related to food and nutrition insecurity. Uh, now one of the one of the things I'm curious about is when you're in med school and you're going into community health and advocacy uh, is that common are you an outlier when I was in law school I don't know if this was the case with you Mark but there were you know just a handful of us that were thinking about, um, being public defenders or pro bono law, but but that was not the majority. And I'm wondering for for a doc, um, were you surrounded by a lot of other community health um, aspiring practitioners, or were you a little bit of an outlier? Yeah, at the time, um, this was um, not too long ago, but um, definitely different times. But yeah, it, it was not much as much of a focus as I think it is now. I think a lot of medical students are recognizing the importance of health equity and racial and, and ethnic inequities. Um, but really, that that wasn't much on the radar. Public health wasn't wasn't um, wasn't common in in medical school. Um, I I surrounded myself with with like minded individuals. So you know, my core group of friends. Um, specifically, I, I worked a lot with the Latino Medical Association, and we were all sort of like minded and interested in public and community health. Um, but I would say there's been more of a push more recently. So I'm an associate program director for our, our residency program. So I interview a lot of of uh, med school applicants, and and I would say that is becoming more and more common is, is advocacy and interest in, in community health, which is which is wonderful, which is what we need. That, that's encouraging. Yeah, very encouraging. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, as we get into the uh, the, the nature of the, the partnership with, with Chair Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Let's just start, Mark, by talking about the basics of what does the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics do? Mission, purpose, how's it executed? What are your how would you describe your your major goals as an organization? The American Academy of Pediatrics, I think you mentioned, Billy, that it was founded in 1930. And as we're approaching 100 years of existence here, I think what has been really true to the mission since the very beginning is an outward focus on optimizing the health and well-being of children, while also being a large medical society of pediatricians and, and pediatric medical subspecialists and pediatric surgical specialists. I think the founders in 1930 intentionally created a medical society that would have as its focus the patients. And I think that was very unique and in many ways remains unique uh, across the existing medical societies today. And so the Academy's focus has been twofold. One is all of the things that happen inside the clinic and outside the clinic that affect the health and well-being of children. And two, how do we create 
the best in medical science, the best in medical education, the best in policy in order to advance the cause of child health. And those two tracks have really been consistent since the very beginning and, and how we think about it today. So we think of our work product at AAP is sort of policy, advocacy, and education. We create uh, the best policy there is for uh, the care of children in the United States and around the world. And so uh, oftentimes uh, families will hear about us on you know, the drive-in, you know, the AAP says uh, this about car seats or that about juice or whatever the, the topic is. And so we, we earn a lot of media that way because people are very interested in, uh, in what our experts have to say about topics. And, uh, and so People think about us as authoritative and reliable, as objective experts in, in child health. And so we produce the policy, and those, those recommendations are followed in the United States, and frequently they set the standard for the world. And so we take that very seriously to think about children, not just here, but everywhere. And then secondly, we have to educate our members and all the the professionals and clinicians who take care of children. So that includes uh, pediatricians, but there's lots of children taken care of by family physicians and nurse practitioners. And so how do we do that education so that people have the best and latest in uh, medical science and evidence and evidence-based practice? And then third, and really importantly, is uh, advocacy. And so how do we get at those systems that Dr. Montez was talking about? How do we affect not just the child individually and family that's in that clinic, in that visit, but how do we affect the community in which they live, the state that they live in, and, and all of the social supports and networks and all those things that make their lives better? So between our policy development, our education, and our advocacy, that is really the work of what we think of as the kind of core work of the academy. And, and we cover all the topics. There, there's not much about child health that we're not actively thinking about. So Certainly, as we have just been through a global pandemic and, and all the impacts of that terrible infectious disease on children here and around the world, or child safety and, and sort of the basics around, um, you know, swimming pools and, uh, and bicycle helmets and all of that, uh, to really difficult long-term social problems like uh, housing insecurity or food insecurity or violence in the lives of children. And so that's all our work, that, and we, we do that every day. And much of our work is fueled and advanced by our members who are unbelievably generous in volunteering for AAP to step forward and help us write those policies or deliver that education or conduct that advocacy, whether it's local or at the state level or at the federal level. And so between our 67,000 members, there's an expert in almost everything. And what's amazing about that population of physicians is that they're willing to dedicate their expertise and energy to AAP to help us advance the cause for all kids. And so it's a dynamic and exciting place. And and uh, we're a big organization. Our headquarters is in uh, Illinois, just outside near O'Hare Airport. And uh, and so we get to meet our members uh, in person nowadays. That's a lot more fun than on Zoom or, or WebEx or something. Uh, but it, it is a collaborative experience between AAP uh, staff and members to to write all that policy and get all that work done. It's a, it's a fun place to work. Well, let me ask you two things about your members. Uh, you mentioned 67,000 uh, members uh, currently, and if, in business terms, what would is, what's your market share? Is that uh, are the majority of pediatricians active with you, uh, or are you where you want to be in terms of uh, the pediatrician market, so to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. We are the primary pediatric medical society in the United States. Uh, there are a number of other smaller societies that are focused on a subspecialty or a, a subgrouping of pediatricians, but we are really the only um, national society that contains um, opportunities for primary care. So the doctors who do well-child visits and, and make sure that children are developing well and, and that most kids see uh, at some point in their childhood many times and then all the way through adolescence. But in addition to that, we also have all of the subspecialties, so pulmonology and infectious disease and rheumatology and all the rest of that and then all the surgeons. And so between all of those kinds of pediatricians, whether they're in the community or in the hospital, whether they're researchers 
or uh, in public policy. Uh, that richness and diversity of our large membership, I think, gives us the the um, the ability to speak authoritatively for pediatrics. And so we have most of the uh, pediatricians in the country, and we are really the largest medical society for pediatricians in the world. And they're joining, uh, I'm, I'm speculating, tell me if I'm right or wrong, uh, for kind of a twofold purpose. One is because they get supports from the academy that are valuable, but two is because it, it creates, it's a vehicle for them to contribute in some of the ways that you've described. Are, are, are both of those accurate? Yes, I think I'd be curious about Dr. Montez's view of this as well. But I think on our survey data, uh, why people are members of the Academy is is no surprise. They uh, feel very proud to be members of the American Academy of Pediatrics because it is setting the standards of care for children and advocating for the best for children. And so um, it's much less about what they get back from it than what, what it accomplishes for children and what they can con- contribute, which just says a lot about our members. Uh, well, Dr. Montez, let's have you answer that as well in terms of what you, uh, why why you're part of it. Yes, I would 100% agree with with what um, Mark said. Like like I mentioned, I joined the AAP whenever I was a resident. I didn't know that I could have joined it as a medical student. Otherwise, I would have. <laughs> I I would have <laughs> drank the Kool Aid way earlier on than than I had known. But um, it, it really came to my attention whenever I was a resident. And I, I like I said, I drank the Kool Aid. And really, it started that formative formative experience of receiving a, 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 a grant from the AAP to conduct an advocacy project. Really, really pushed me into the idea of advocacy and and um, policy work that could really um, make some foundational change in the field. Um, recognizing that we we make our we we have important relationships with families that are that are enduring. And we can affect health on an individual level, but sometimes that's not enough. And so I think that's what the AAP allows us to do as pediatricians is is to elevate our voice and to really advocate um, to dismantle those structural um, factors that affect health and um, to be able to to um, work with our legislators. You know, I, I, I love the folks at um, the Federal Affairs Office. Um, you know, we've become really close. They they just do in such important work and they're so supportive. I'm on the committee for um, federal governmental affairs. I'm a, lia- a liaison to that. And I really enjoy that because we meet in Washington and we get to meet with our legislators and we talk about important topics, um, bills that are coming up and why um, why they should or should not be supported by, by our legislators. So it's really, really important work. And, and it's what is going to affect child health. And the AAP has just been so supportive of that. And I am very proud to be a member. Well, um, while you've got the mic, Dr. Montez, you know, you and Mark have both mentioned structural uh, issues, inequities, racial and health inequities and disparities. What should the rest of us know about that? You probably almost see it so much that you take it for granted as a, a fact of life for a lot of uh, our children in this country. But how should the rest of us understand what does that actually look like? What does that, what's the impact of that type of uh, inequity? I can, I can speak to it from a, from a patient level. Um, certainly I can talk about it at a societal level, but it looks like a patient who is maybe a newborn coming into a visit who whose um, m- whose mother may may maybe may be experiencing a number of different factors that are that are going to affect the health of the baby. The baby may and may not be gaining weight because the mother doesn't have or the family doesn't have access to nutritious enough nutritious food. Um, they may not be aware that um, that support exists um, through WIC or SNAP. And so the baby is is failing to to gain weight. Um, they, they're underweight. They are not eating enough. They may um, they may not be able to hold their temperature. We may have to send them to the hospital um, in order to to get the services that they need. Um, the family um, may may not have attended the the visit as like we usually expect, which is about one to two days after um, discharge from the hospital, because they weren't unable to access um, transportation resources. And um, also the family is really struggling with housing. They don't have a crib for the baby. Um, they are living with other family members and they're they're huddled into one room and they don't have a crib for the baby. So those are all just some examples of 
of some of those structural barriers that families experience, low-income families, families who who may not even have low incomes, but still are, are a part or period of their life where where they um, they don't have access to the resources that they need, and then that affects the family health. Then that affects the child's health, and that can have ramifications long term um, throughout the child's life. And how um, how wide how widespread is the the disparity that that most pediatricians witness. I guess I'm just trying to get a, a sense of the size and scope of the problem. Yeah, sure. Well, I, th- I think you know, one um, 11 million children live in poverty, and I think you know, poverty is where a lot of this stems from. So, 11 11 million children in, in poverty is is a frightening statistic um, because we, we know what policies work. Um, you know, one in seven children um, who are racial and ethnic minority uh, experience poverty and one in six under five. So if you just think of a room of kids and, and how many in that room are affected by poverty, um, or we have the recent food insecurity statistics that um, that were just released by the USDA. And in 2021, the rate of food insecurity, uh, household food insecurity among um, households with children was 12.5%. Um, which is which is still relatively um, high. Uh, it has been it had been decreasing um, since the recession, but ju- then the new number in 2022, which is the most recent data we have uh, available, jumped from 12.5 percent to 17.3 percent. And the thought there is that during the pandemic, we had a lot of uh, support from federal support, and um, that a- enabled children to access the re- and families the resources that they needed to be able to attain food security, nutrition security, and the resources that they needed. And then all of those supports expired, and we saw those rates um, shoot up. So we know what works for kids. Uh, Mark, what's your perspective on on the issues of, of structural challenges and uh, equity issues? Yeah, thank you. I think this is incredibly important and not very well known. And I think the the statistics that Dr. Montez cites are known to us in the child advocacy community. It's things that we think about all the time. But I think that we are facing a really terrible misperception that um, that if food insecurity even exists in childhood popul in pediatric populations, that it's a small number. And I think the context for that those statistics is really important. What we saw over the course of the COVID pandemic and even till now, at at the peak of the pandemic, 55% of children were on Medicaid or CHIP, uh, which is, these are public poverty-based public healthcare programs. So 55% of kids, and even if we correct for, you know, after the pandemic, a public health emergency ends, even if it gets to 50%, what, what we have to recognize and sort of accept as a country is that 50% of children, at least, are growing up in families that are poor or very near poor. And food insecurity is an integral part of that. And with, if we are thinking about the policy implications of that, what will we do to build a, a system around those families to support all of their needs, in, including their basic need for food? 55% is a stunning statistic. And um, I would say it affirms what we see as share of strength all the time, but it won't surprise you to know that one of the most common refrains and responses we get to our work is, I didn't realize that kids in this country were hungry. It's just, um, it's invisible to a lot of people. Uh, And again, I know that won't surprise you, but we hear it constantly. And so part of our job has to be to not only deliver the services, but to create the public will and the political will and the you know which is based on awareness so that people want to do something about it or want their policymakers to do something about it let's talk about uh specifically the partnership that uh, aap and share our strength now have i uh will oversimplify it i'm sure but we talk about it here as a partnership focused on helping to train the 67,000 pediatricians and and specialists and and subspecialists in uh, being able to both identify, screen for, and ultimately make referrals to necessary services for kids who present with hunger, food insecurity, malnutrition, 
Uh, we're working together in a number of states now, as I mentioned at the very top of this conversation. We are so excited about this partnership. We're just in the very, very early stages. I think we've got some information actually coming from your team, Mark, in the next uh, week or so about some of the results that we've had. But what can you share about why American Academy of Pediatrics got involved in this partnership in the first place and, and what you hope it will accomplish? Oh, great. Yeah, um, this partnership is unfortunately incredibly necessary. Uh, we wish that weren't the case, but here we are. And I think the energy and excitement around it stems entirely from the stories that Dr. Montez talked about in what is showing up in the exam rooms of pediatricians every single day. That whatever the problem that families are facing, they bring that problem into the pediatrician's office, even if it's not medical, even if it's about transportation or housing or or food insecurity. And so we know that pediatricians play a central role in screening for food insecurity, for identifying those children and families at risk, and then connecting those families to appropriate community resources. And so what our partnership with Share Our Strength is about is making that system work very well to enhance the ability of our members to do that kind of screening and identification and referral, and then to make sure that when that intervention occurs, when children are identified or families are identified, that when they are asking them to reach out to a WIC office or access services, that pediatricians know from the WIC office what happens to them and whether or not that referral worked. And so we want to close that loop from just offering a family resources to actually making sure something happens. And building that system and making it work better is uh, incredibly important. Just since we began in uh, about two and a half years ago, we've already had over 4,000 pediatricians trained on how to do this, and we're learning through that process of training about how to do it better. And I think we've got good data coming out of now 14 states uh, where this is really taking off and, and piloting these new systems for what we're calling closed-loop referrals, where pediatricians find out what happened when that food insecurity is identified. And so we want to take this to scale. We uh, And because of the incredible generosity and support of Share Our Strength, we're thinking that we can offer this kind of training to all of our members, which is uh, something I rarely say out loud. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's necessary. And if we can, if we can get there, we can make a huge difference here. Uh, it's important and exciting work, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Well, the notion of scaling this up gets us to, to reach everybody, gets us really excited. Well, I want, I'd love to ask both of you, though, from your perspective, Mark and Dr. Montez, from your perspective as a practitioner, it seems like a lot to ask of pediatricians. I think about the times when I've been in the, you know, the pediatrician's office with my son and our doc is running from patient to patient to patient with her laptop and, you know, uh, maybe running 45 minutes late and, just, you know, everyone's depending on her. And uh, now we're asking her to do this as well. It's almost uh, it's almost like, how do you make it fit? Do you have any concerns that we're, we're uh, putting one more thing on pediatricians that are already completely overworked and overloaded? You know, we thank you for acknowledging that. We, we do a lot in, in 20, 15, 20, um, if we're lucky, 30-minute visits. We have a lot to cover to ensure... Um, Children are safe. Children are healthy, and they can are, are set up to um, to reach their their fullest potential. Um, and and that that looks like a lot of uh, different things. Um, and and so yes, it, it uh, it's, it's it's adding one more thing to our plate. But we know how important it is. Um, you know, for example, you know, food food security can you mentioned. Is, is, is invisible. It can be invisible, but it can look like depression. It can look like developmental delay. It can look like behavior problems. I think if a child is hungry, they're not going to be able to focus on school. They're going to um, not perform well academically, and then that's going to affect their future prospect as an adult and ability to contribute to society. So yes, it's one more thing, but we know how important it is um, as pediatricians, and therefore, um, and therefore, 
think it's very important to address. And and we're really fortunate. Um, I think, you know, children spend a lot of their time at schools for sure. But I do think to, to your point, you know, just in the first year of life, they have seven to eight visits with us. So we get the opportunity to build that relationship relationship with families from a very early age and follow the child throughout their life, which is just such a special relationship that we have. And so we are, we have a, a, a great ability to, to impact a child's tra- um, trajectory. And that starts on, you know, very early in their life. And, and again, we know that food insecurity as, uh, impacts the lifespan, um, even, be, even being associated with lower birth weights, higher rates preterm, um, increased risk of anemia, lots of things all the way into adulthood. So if we can start really early by screening and intervening, um, it, it can make a difference. And Mark, as CEO of the American Academy of Pediatrics, you're you're kind of the one asking them to to do this or uh, providing the information that they need to to do it. And so far, as you say, you've got four thousand trained, which is remarkable. Um, any concerns at your end about just how many things we ask of our docs? For sure, I, it's very important to acknowledge this, and thank you for raising it. I, it, it, it Children are complex things, and the care of a child is a complex thing, and so that means there are a lot of things to talk about in a very short period of time. Uh, But one of the things our role is uh, at AAP is to enable our members to be able to provide the kind of care that they know that children need, they they understand that, that families need, and then to enable that success. So if if a child is Uh, part of a family in which there is chronic and persistent food insecurity, and it manifests in all the ways that Dr. Montez just described, this becomes a primary issue. So whether it is added to the list or not, it is a barrier to all the other kinds of guidance and health promotion activities that the pediatricians would want to work on. So I think if, if you don't ask, you don't know. And if you don't uh, know, then you can't understand why um, things are not getting better. And, and so making sure that our members have the tools and an and ability to screen appropriately in ways that, that help them identify children at risk or children or who are currently uh, hungry. And then, as importantly, to create the systems so that they have something they can do about it. Uh, It's terrible to identify a problem and not be able to solve it. And so that piece of it, the policy piece of it, uh, in addition to what goes on uh, in the the exam room, the piece of it that happens outside of that is equally important. So we have to have some place to refer. So there has to be a very strong WIC program or a very strong SNAP program. Uh, and so that there is a solution to this in addition to the screening identification as well. Thank you. Um, Kimberly, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is in, when you were listing off the number of potential issues that children come in to see their pediatricians for, um, I think about uh, food insecurity uh, most of my time. But one of the other things I just have to take advantage of this moment uh, with you both uh, on this podcast is just ask about uh, mental health issues and what's going on there. Uh, again, I know from uh, having a son who's just in his freshman year of college, uh, in his high school, so many of his classmates were dealing with different types of mental health health issues. And it seems like in the category of pediatricians taking on even more, that in recent years, this has become a, a, a very important issue. Uh, is it something you see? Is it something that pediatricians can play a, a unique role uh, in addressing? Sure. I, and I can start and I'm sure Mark can add, um, you know, the AAP, you know, issued an alert uh, about uh, the pediatric mental health crisis. Um, I can tell you on the ground, I, you know, more than the, today I was in clinic and I can tell you, you know, at least half of the kids that we that we saw had some sort of mental health concern, and and the the level the 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 level of it varied, right? So we had some kids who um, maybe were experiencing a little bit of distress, all the way to some who were experiencing suicidal ideation. And so I, I'm de- we are definitely seeing that, um, unfortunately, much more common. Um, I think that during the pandemic, it worsened. Um, 
And so, yes, unfortunately, that we are seeing that. I think as pediatricians, um, we have guidelines that we follow um, that AAP has issued a bright future. So we 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 luckily we screen. So we screen our, our patients um, for mental health concerns. And if they if they come in with a mental health concern, we do additional screening. Um, and and some of us are lucky, like my, like myself and my clinic, to be able to have on site behavioral health providers who could perform a warm handoff and connect to services. Um, but not not all locations have that. And so I think thinking about um, how we can rethink the mental health um, supports and systems is, is going to be a really important um, policy issue. Mark, are we in a, a new era when it comes to mental health issues? It seems like even, I certainly agree with what uh, Dr. Montez said about the pandemic, but it seems like even pre-pandemic, uh, we were seeing upticks relative to anything we've experienced in recent years before that. Unfortunately, this is a profound crisis, and it preceded the pandemic. The experience that Dr. Montez described in her office happens over and over and over all day long all around the country. Uh, the rates of suicidality among young kids, even down to very young kids starting age five, six, and seven and going up, are up double digits uh, in every age category. Uh, there is something profoundly troubling happening out there for kids and young adults and adolescents. And, and so as, as Dr. Montez said, we, we were alarmed about this before the pandemic. And then certainly the invisibility of children during the pandemic deepened and, and worsened it. But to the point that two years ago, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, along with the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the Children's Hospital Association declared a state of emergency in the United States around children's mental health. And we have renewed that call for a state of emergency twice now. We just renewed it again last month. Uh, we need profound help in this space. Um, whether or not we have uh, new psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, all the rest, this is what children are facing and what pediatricians are seeing every day. And so at AAP, we've got many strategies that we are trying to um, uh, to to launch to be able to take care of more of the more routine concerns in the pediatrician's office, because otherwise what we see are children waiting in the emergency department for days and weeks or overwhelmed and long waiting lists at child psychiatrists. And so, yeah, this is a huge and, and, and difficult problem. And it's the kind of problem where, where when we talk about food insecurity, you talk about particular populations of kids, but for the mental health crisis, this is very diffuse across uh, all socioeconomic strata and all populations. And almost any adult you talk about knows a child or has a friend of a, of a child or grandchild that is experiencing a crisis. And so thank you for raising the issue. It is profoundly important and, and, and is what we're working on every day. And when you talk about needing help, where should or where could or should the the help come from is it more money from the government is it more um as you mentioned maybe the need for more uh docs or uh psychologists or counselors what 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 does that help look like uh, yes uh, all of those things i think uh there is incredibly uh insufficient or workforce shortages across all of those uh, child and adolescent facing uh, professionals that you mentioned, child psychiatrists or child psychologists, or social workers and the like. The only workforce that is seeing a lot of kids and has capacity to see a lot of kids are pediatricians. And so we have our own work here to do to uh, raise the ability and comfort level with pediatricians across the board to to be able to take on more of the mental health concerns, even if that wasn't the focus of their training sometimes. Uh, and so we're doing our part to try to increase our capacity in this place to be able to do more of that so that you're having to refer less, you're having to seek out additional allied health professionals uh, less often uh, it, to take the strain out of the system. So it's going to take all of those things that you said, we need to be able to arm pediatricians with um, with information and, and techniques and strategies and skills to be able to take care of this. We need to grow the workforce uh, wherever it is, whether it's school nurses or or all, all the rest. Uh, and we need to rapidly understand the root causes of why children are suffering like this. Uh, what is going on in our world, in our culture, in our society that is is having such a profoundly hard impact on our kids? That I think you've put your finger on one of the most important things we could do. It often, you know, people often 
um, use the shorthand of uh, you know blaming social media, and I'm sure social media plays a role, but I think there's more, as you say, more profound things going on in our society that we need to understand. Uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here in 45 minutes. I know we're running out of time. The, I guess the last thing I would like to ask you both about is uh, we've talked about the role of advocacy, and I think uh, that pediatricians, in my mind, make such effective advocates. They've got the expertise. They've literally got the hands on our children. There's the, the proximity. They're bearing witness every day to, as you said, Dr. Montez, uh, problems that uh, exist in society that come into the pediatrician's office with, uh, with the kids. Uh, say a little bit, Dr. Montez, about the, the opportunity that is yet to be uh, reached, uh, that we have not yet reached fruition with pediatricians acting as advocates. And then uh, maybe we could wrap, wrap up, Mark, by you talking about some of AAP's other advocacy and policy priorities. Well, I would say the AAB has been a thought leader when it comes to screening and intervening on food insecurity. Back since 2015, one of the first professional societies to really recommend screening and intervening. Um, I think back then it was so uh, so new that I think even pediatricians were like, what, we should be doing this and, and, and how and with what? And, and the AAP has really led the efforts and now a share our strength to, to be able to ensure that pediatricians have the tools. Um, the AAP and the Food Research and Action Center released a food um, insecurity toolkit for pediatricians. Again, a step-by-step -step guide um, for teaching how to pe for teaching pediatricians how to address this, this work in clinic and beyond and in communities. Um, even even um, the, the policy statement and the toolkit both included um, advocacy as, as a key function of this work. And I think pediatricians, we are natural advocates, right? We recognize that our patients don't have the um, ability to vote, so they don't have a voice, so we are their voice. And so we, we advocate on behalf. Um, and so I think pediatricians can continue to advocate. The Farm Bill is coming up, um, which represents a, a great opportunity um, it, it really it will impact a lot of the federal nutrition programs. And so things like we know that work policies that we know that worked. So increasing um, and, and, and um, increasing uh, WIC services and increasing SNAP is going to be very important. Um, right now, we know that, um, th that there are children who are eligible for WIC but do not participate. And so finding ways to connect um, patients to WIC and, and ensuring that that WIC um, is, is able to um, to continue enrolling new patients, you know, it has to turn away 600,000 eligible new patients um, because it doesn't have enough enough funding. And additionally, there's a house bill out there that's going to um, that plans to cut fruit and vegetable benefits for for almost five million participants. Um, and then um, SNAP being being cut. So lots of lots of advocacy work that can be done in addition to the screening and intervening in clinical settings, um, training pediatricians, um, but also um, being being advocates for this work. Can can you think of any universe where it makes sense to cut produce and vegetables and, and fruit for for kids? That's absolutely none. Really frightening. Um, Mark Del Monte, um, bring us uh, to a close here by talking about some of the other priorities that we should be aware of of the American Academy of Pediatrics and how do we learn more? Maybe give us your website as well. Terrific, thank you. And uh, I just want to echo and thank. Dr. Matez for raising a, a fairly acute issue in, in advocacy uh, around the WIC program. Uh, th this is an active discussion uh, in the U.S. Capitol right now. And so all of us who care about children who are food insecure should care about the adequacy of the WIC program. And uh, I, I like the framing that there's no universe in which cutting nutrition uh, to children and families who need it is a good idea. And in fact, we have never really optimized fully the WIC program. We, we have never really made everyone who is eligible for the program able to access it. And in, in some statistics, or it's half of, of children who, who are eligible for WIC access it. So we've got a lot of work to do in this space. And so there's no room to be making that smaller. Uh, we have we should be making greater investments in that. And and as I as uh, as you mentioned at the outset. Um, Pediatricians are naturally advocates, and as you've heard from Dr. Montez, she is naturally an advocate because the work of advancing child health uh, happens at every level, in, one at a time, and across systems and across uh, states. And in fact, the first president of the AAP 
said that insofar as it should be in our power, we should correct evil and introduce reform. And so that's a broad agenda for children, um, uh, for sure. And so, you know, uh, 93 years later, we, we press on in that. And I think pediatricians uh, are trusted because they're trusted as advocates because they're trusted by families. Uh, they know, families know that what pediatricians are telling them is true and authoritative and based on the best available science. And so policymakers uh, believe the same thing. And so pediatricians are terrific advocates uh, for uh, all the topics that are necessary to improve the lives of children. And and the other thing is that they're very skilled, as you've heard today, uh, in explaining complicated things in simple ways, because that's what they do all day. And so certainly policymakers need complicated things explained to them in very simple ways. And so uh, that makes them terrific advocates. Uh, our policy agenda is broad. We, we work on all, uh, many topics across child health. AAP.org is our website. And for anybody who is interested in helping out, we have great advocacy uh, teams in D.C. and at headquarters in Illinois. And if there's something that you want to work on, I guarantee there's a group of pediatricians out there who want to work on that, too. So thanks for the chance to to plug that. That's an awesome offer. Thank you, Mark. Um, and, you know, you both talked about the importance of WIC, uh, uh, an importance and a commitment which we share. Uh, you'll you'll be pleased, I think, to know that we've also got a partnership with the American Public Human Services Association, the APHSA, that is focused on uh, what we think of as benefits access or integrated benefits access. But it's really uh, the idea is to create some cross enrollment for WIC and SNAP. Uh, in many many cases, if a if a, a family or a mom is uh, on SNAP. Uh, and has young kids, the odds are very, very high that she's eligible for WIC as well, but that doesn't mean that she gets WIC. Um, and sometimes SNAP and WIC are overseen by different st agencies within the same state. We have had some really exciting early success in uh, helping states literally uh, redo their software, uh, change their software, embed staff and state agencies uh, in five states now, We've spent $2.5 million, we being share of strength, uh, over the last year. And we've cross-enrolled 55,000 families either into SNAP or into WIC, more typically into WIC. They'll pull down $86 million in federal benefits over the next year for an investment of $2.5 million. So it's an ROI that I feel like a return on investment that you know Warren Buffett uh, would only dream of. And you know the, these... These, these these forms of assistance are out there for families. And uh, although we talk about it in the form of uh, software and technology and embedding staff in state agencies, it's fundamentally, a, you know, an equity issue. You know, as a society, we we decide uh, that certain benefits are necessary and 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 appropriate for individuals, for companies, for businesses. Uh, if you could imagine hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in benefits, whether they were tax breaks or farm subsidies for Exxon or Pfizer or ConAgra, if you can imagine hundreds of millions of dollars of benefits not being uh, just being left on the table by those companies, uh, no way. Uh, but you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of benefits are left on the table for families that don't have the necessarily the political power, or the lawyers, or the lobbyists, or or the voice to go get it. And so fundamentally, this is, you know, in, in my mind, this is a almost a radical recentering of, of equity to ensure that uh, everybody that our society uh, has said needs and deserves certain benefits gets them, not just uh, those who can uh, afford to, to go after them for, for whatever position they're in. So I think there's great opportunity ahead here and uh, our partnership with the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, as I say, I'm so grateful for, and the two of you, uh, Mark Del Monte and Dr. Kimberly Montes, you're doing such amazing work. I know this is going to be so inspiring to uh, everybody that listens to the podcast and certainly to our entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. I'm so grateful that you've, you've joined us today. So thank you so much for being with us. Um, I'm Billy Shore, and on behalf of Share Our Strength and our entire team here, my sister Debbie Shore, who's often on this podcast with me, and our producers uh, at District Productive today, Hunter Sense, 
Uh, thanks so much for listening. You can go to adpassionandstir.com and you can find all of our previous episodes. You can listen to them, rate them, rank them, and share them with friends. Again, thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Mm-hmm.